tennis.com podcast. And here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the tennis.com podcast. I am Ed McGrogan speaking with Peter Bodo on the final Monday uh, morning tennis player edition, I guess, of the podcast where we can look back at an event. Uh, we have the just completed Davis Cup final. Uh, this officially marks the end of the season. Uh, just before Thanksgiving this year, we're actually going to get into that a little bit later in the podcast. But, Pete, to start off with, you have the Czech Republic beating Spain Davis Cup final, 3-2, all live rubbers. Uh, Czech Republic now has the Davis Cup, the Fed Cup, even the Hotman Cup, as someone pointed out to me on Twitter yesterday. It's just, what is this kind of dominance in uh, international competition really speak to the country itself, just, you know, their players, their accomplishments, just kind of maybe put that in perspective a little bit. Well, you know, there's always been national pride in the mid-European nations or even East European nations in terms of stuff like this. I mean, they've got a long history. I mean, Romania, back in the era of Ilya Nastasi and the Ontariak, of course, you know, they, these people really believe in this stuff. We saw it, of course, with the Serbians when uh, Djokovic led the team to the Davis Cup. It, it's a huge honor. Uh, it's one of those situations where these nations are, you know, they're overshadowed by Western Europe, by France, Germany, Italy, Spain, especially now in tennis. And, you know, this gives them, you know, a chance to really tap into their national pride. You know, that can go either way. Sometimes it can get ugly, although, you know, in that part of the world, it doesn't generally. People are pretty well behaved. I think they were during the Fed Cup final. But it, it, it's a really, you know, a chance to shout out to the world. Here we are. We're the Czech Republic. We're here. And, uh, and, and you know, it was a long time coming for the Czechs in this because they've been a great tennis power. As I wrote last week, you know, they've produced a tremendous number of players, including two of the best ever, Ivan Lendl and Martina Navratilova, just recently. So, you know, it was a long time coming because they'd only won one Davis Cup. How about um, Thomas Burdett specifically talking about how he performed in the tie? Now, he did not clinch the cup with he had a chance to. He had that um, match against Ferrer, the fourth rubber. Now, that was a tall task for him. He, it was not only his third match in three days. It was his third match literally in succession in the tie. He played the third, excuse me, the second, the third, and the fourth rubber, just kind of the way the schedule worked out when he was put into doubles. Well, um, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I, I, basically I was going to kind of say I think a lot of people might draw that parallel to, I think a lot of people are trying to draw that parallel to Novak Djokovic two years ago. He, he does the Davis Cup, and, you know, that kind of leads to bigger and better things on the tour. But I don't really know if, how much connection you want to draw between those two types of tournaments, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, I wouldn't draw a tremendous amount of connection here, to tell you the truth. I mean, Berdick, you know, look, I mean, he did what he had to do, but, you know, Berdick played three matches in a row, yes, and they were back-to-back matches, as you, uh, you know, justly point out. Uh, on the other hand, you know, Roddick Stephanie played three matches in a row, and he's 30, almost 34 years old. Uh, he's going to be 34 this month. So, you know, it, it, it's clearly, this is just a wonderful, wonderful example of how the Davis Cup is really unpredictable and how it's so kind of a kind of a format. And I think that's one of the beauties of Davis. Davis Cup that's not you know not often remarked upon is that the format looks pretty rigid you know four man team three rubbers one you know one doubles the schedule set in advance you know the outstanding feature of that schedule I guess is that the fourth rubber is always between the number uh, is between the number one players on each squad which you know heightens the drama it's the right way to do it uh, so you know it, it's you know. 
uh, I think Stepanek's magic, you know, magical time. You know, this is going to be his lifetime achievement. He had a, a career statement with this thing. And once again, it underscored the beauty of the Davis Cup. As far as Beardick goes, I mean, look, we, we've seen that guy underperform before, and I don't want to dump on him. Let's face it, Ferrer still ranked higher than he is, even though, you know, and, and they were playing it in Czech, Czech Republic on a, on a pretty fast court, so that level the playing field. But that was never. It isn't like Burdick blew it. It's just that he didn't really step up big time the way Stepanek did. And now, uh, I actually want to mention the other the other side here, the Almagro. Nicholas Almagro, who lost the fifth Robert David Ferrer, kind of, kind of in hindsight, maybe, you know, Thomas Burns before this made a big point to talk, to sort of basically talk down Almagro, saying that he was the weak link in this. And, and, and actually, if you, uh, you know, he, he does come up short against Burns. It's, you know, not, that's a tough opponent for him, of course, in the rankings. But, but then again, uh, after Ferrer wins the fourth rubber, he probably almost have to give Almagro potentially the, the favorite level for that fifth rubber with, I think, all the pressure kind of coming down Stepanek. Almagro, certainly a higher-ranked player, better singles player than Stepanek in general. So what, is it, what did you think about Almagro really in this whole time? I think Ferrer was outstanding, but what about Almagro? Well, you know, I think Berdick essentially, Berdick's, you know, he, he, you know, he, he was sort of trash talked, uh, I guess, but I, that doesn't bother me terribly in these situations. If the reality is, you know, Almagro was number two, and to some degree, you got to keep in mind that Almagro's really been a second stringer on a Spanish team. You know, he's got a, he's got a solid record. He's a good player, but really, it's been all about Nadal, you know, Ferrer, the guys who won it. You know, the Lopez Verdasco when they had the great upset of Argentina. You know, Almagro really hasn't figured in there as kind of like a big match player, and suddenly he was expected to be a really big match player. Uh, now, you know, he had a couple good wins. You know, or, you know earlier. But this was a whole different ball of wax. Normally, I, I always like to stress the fact that all the pressure really, much more of the pressure is on the home team. It's a lot easier, I think, to get a hate on for the people who are around you cheering the other guy, et cetera, and be once you've got experience anyway, you know, uh, it's a lot easier to get, you know, draw some anger and some fire and some, you know, some sense of solidarity with your captain and your bench and you're going nuts than it is to be the guy that you got 20,000 people and they've got this huge expectation. Now you got to fulfill it. Uh, this is one of those cases though, where I think the pressure probably did shift to Almagro because of the circumstances. You know, no Nadal. Almagro's got to step in, you know, and kind of put on a big boy pants in a sense. Uh, and he's not really been expected to do that generally in his, you know, in his career as a Davis Cup player. So you got to feel for the guy in that situation. And, you know, and, and Stepanek, you know, the, the other aspect of the Davis Cup producing these wonderful stories of the unsung hero, the unexpected hero, is that you also get the unexpected go. And I don't think anybody really thought Almagro was going to be the goat in this because they, you know, they saw him as being, you know, they saw this really Berdick and Ferrer were going to be the deciding factors in this tie kind of, and the doubles, and, and it turned out the other way. We, like I said before, last event of the year here, um, Davis Cup final last year ended in December. I was over at the final. It was that was sort of the last season where. Uh, the, comp the the year's calendar ended at that point. It ends about two weeks earlier now, just before Thanksgiving in the U.S., but still we're talking an 11-and-a-half-month season here. Um, you still hear the season just ended, but it's it's really not that far even for when it starts again. 
is this still too late in the year to end tennis? Um, I know this is a not a there's no solution to this with kind of the way that the tournaments have shaped out, but is this still a little too late to end the season in your opinion? No, not in my opinion, because this is something tennis players have to have to really, you know, come to grips with. You either they're either gonna have to play a full schedule of, you know, depending on a player, of course, you know, two, three, four matches a week for a, a significantly long period of time, and then get a significantly long off season, or they're going to have intervals. Uh, and let's face it, these are intervals. Like, you take your typical – take a guy like an Almagro, right? I think he's been in the quarters of the French twice. It's his best Grand Slam result. He loses early, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, in a couple of other majors. Now, that guy's got two weeks off. You know, now granted he's got time to, you know, he's got to practice, he's got to keep his game in shape, he's got to go somewhere else. But you know what? He's got time off. You know, it, and it's, you know, the New York Jets, for instance, a quarterback, Sanchez, just leads his team to this, you know, great victory, saves their hash, and then he's got to come back Thursday night and play again after being beat up on Sunday. And, you know, there's no respite through the NFL season. He doesn't get, like, a, a two-week break or a three-week break. All he gets is that one bye week, if you're familiar with the NFL. So, you know, it, it's, it's not it, – tennis is an interval sport, and I kind of always stress this. How many matches did Roger Federer play between the end of the U.S. Open and the end of this year now? How much time off did Federer have between end of Wimbledon and his return to the hard court circuit where I don't know if he came back in Canada or at Cincinnati escapes me at the moment, but you know, that's a significant chunk of time between those tournaments. So, you know, it's an interval sport. It's based around four grand slams and you slot in the Davis Cup here, you know, the Hoffman Cup, you know, which is actually gaining legitimacy, which is kind of nice to see. You slot that in there and, and you know, and then it's intervals. People get periods of rest and then training. And and I think it wor- I think it works this way. You really had to throw the Jets in there. Well, uh, you know, it was the only example that came to mind. But it's true of, of every team. Well, I should I should point out that the week before that, the Bills they played on Sunday, and then they just came back on Thursday and won their game there. So it's not only not only New Jersey's team that can do it, it's New York's team that can do it. Uh, you're always sticking up for the Bills. I'm with you on the Bills, by the way. My heart bleeds for you, but, you know, there will be better days ahead, I'm sure. But, uh, no, but that's the, – the reality is, you know, those guys have a pretty long offseason. But then you look at their training camp, you look at really how much – top flight athletes, you look at how much time they have off. It's not like the offseason is, you know, from – from early February for the NFL until September when they play the first games. They're in camp, you know, in the summer. So, you know, it, you know, it's longer than tennis, no question about that, but it's also more concentrated effort. It, during the season, from training camp through the season, there's really no respite. There's no let-up. There's no, you know, two-week pass. You know, certainly not personally. Maybe team misses a week here, a week there because of the bye, whatever. So, you know, I, I think tennis players have to be careful what they wish for in this regard. They're either going to have to play a hell of a lot of matches in a fairly concentrated period of time and then get a three-month off season if they want, or they're going to space it out the way they do now, following the sun, following the events, and and take it that way. I I think the current system is pretty good. Good note to end on. Something to think about, definitely, and always a discussion kind of around this time of year. Uh, Pete, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, Have a great holiday. We'll talk soon. Happy Thanksgiving to all our listeners. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.